You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading legal minds to discuss everything from legal issues and legislation to practice tips and policy. Now, here's your host, Bill Powers, former president of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice, recipient of the North Carolina State Bar John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, and a founding member of the Center for Legal Education and Advocacy. The legal profession is comprised of many different people, perspectives, and personalities. Whether a legal assistant or paralegal, courtroom lawyer, prosecutor, clerk of court, or judge, what we do for a living can be thought-provoking, thrilling, and quite fulfilling at times. Depending on the case and the circumstances of the litigation, and more than one might expect or hope, the litigants themselves, those who work within the court system on a daily basis, can also be a drain, depressing, and to some, far from any concept of thrilling or fulfilling. It can be, in fact, downright soul-crushing at times. So why do we do what we do? Why do we take on other people's burdens and problems? Why do we willingly subject ourselves to the emotions and the worries and the headaches associated with working through difficult, often emotional disputes? Truth be told, that's what we do. The court system is the way that we, as an organized, civilized society, resolve disputes and wrongs with and between one another. And while imperfect, anyone who studied the different methodologies, or better said, the various historical contextual frameworks for administering justice, may hopefully agree our system of justice is mostly that, just. On Law Talk, we have a unique opportunity to learn about the challenges and joys of the job from those who are in the thick of it. We occasionally hear from judges and lawyers and other legal professionals from around the state about their experiences in the courtrooms and on the bench. We explore different topics, ranging from managing a caseload to working with attorneys. And we truly hope you enjoy the inside look of one of the most important professions in America. Today, we are joined by the Honorable Matt Osmond, District Court Judge in the 26th Judicial District, that is in my home county, Mecklenburg County, from Charlotte. He has been a District Court Judge since 2011, which is 11 years as of the date of this recording. He also has served as an assistant district attorney in what I call our neighboring sister judicial district, Union County in Monroe. And prior to prosecuting Judge Osmond was with the Judge Advocate General Corps, or the Navy JAG, as lawyers tend to call it. Good good morning, Your Honor, and uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, Judge Osmond, you received your license practice law in in 2001, giving you a 20-plus year experience in our years experience in the halls of justice. Uh, as I, uh, as an outsider uh, perspective, or maybe an insider perspective, seeing people in court, um, you've presided over criminal and civil and family courts. You've served as the lead ju- judge for the DWI treatment court uh, and district court in Charlotte. Uh, you spearheaded the revolving backlog of, or resolving the backlog of cases uh, following the COVID-related closures in Mecklenburg County, and, and that's a big deal. Uh, you've been a member of the North Carolina Governor's Statewide Impaired Driving Task Force under Governor McCrory. I hope I got that right. And in uh, speaking with you, I, I, came, I came across a quote or I thought of it. He's one of my favorite writers. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, Friendship is born at the moment when one person says to the other, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. I saw somewhere a quote attributed to you. Uh, to effect, and I'm paraphrasing, I think you said, I believe that public service is a calling, not merely a career option. 
and frankly, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I personally think the professional law, whether as an attorney or judge, is a calling or should be a calling. And it's a calling I've spent almost 30 years of my adult life um, running from in some ways at times. Uh, you and I have served on um, one of the DWI task force together. We spent a fair amount of time traveling back and forth between Charlotte and Raleigh in a car. Uh, I think that's what I learned of your path of becoming a judge was um, intentional and deliberate. Uh, I often refer to myself as an accidental lawyer. I went to law school to avoid getting a job. Uh, when I first started out, I'm not entirely sure I had the most uh, altruistic of, of motivations. Uh, your path towards law school and practicing and becoming a judge uh, was a little bit more thought out uh, with an interesting twist, which I think is worthy uh, of, of discussing. And you're a Charlotte guy. You graduated from high school at Charlotte Christian and you're a Chapel Hill grad. So let's unpack that a little bit. Tell us about how you decided to go to law school, because I think this is really fascinating and not entirely unusual, but but interesting for sure. Uh, I think we all have different pathways. So, you know, why did you or how did you come to go to law school? Sure. And, and I think that you you said before that my path to becoming a judge was somewhat intentional and deliberate. And I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. Once I became a lawyer, I always wanted to serve in that way and thought it was something that I would eventually like to do. But the getting to law school part was a little less planned. Mm -hmm. um, after I graduated from Chapel Hill, I was kind of looking around. I had a history degree with a business minor, a business minor that my parents really wanted me to get that I had no interest in. Um, but I really did not feel called or pulled into any particular direction. So I went up to Capitol Hill. I worked uh, there for a year for a senator from Texas, Senator Phil Graham. Mm -hmm. This was uh, from 1997 into 98. And worked for Senator Graham, uh, pretty much bottom of the totem pole. Uh, I was working uh, in the mailroom, and then I was his driver for a while. Uh, and it was um, a really fascinating experience. Opening mail, not that exciting. Right. Driving a <laughs> senator around D.C. and getting to be a fly on the wall, if you will, for some really interesting conversations was really um, just multiple times I'd look around and like, where am I? Like, how did I, of all people, get to be the driver for a Texas senator? And I'm still not quite sure why that was. But it was a really interesting time. And it was during that time that I, I took the LSAT and I thought about going to law school, but I just didn't feel particularly motivated to do it. Um, but about three weeks before the, the fall semester, the, the year started for the school year 1998 started, I went down and visited a little school in Virginia Beach called Regent University. A good friend of mine was starting his third year of law school there, and he encouraged me to just come check it out. And so I went down and saw the tail end of their summer program, and I sat in on a contracts law case, uh, a contracts law class. And for those who have been to law school, contracts may be one of the most boring and dry <laughs> subject matters there is. Um, but I loved it. I loved the interplay between the professor and the students. I loved the way they unpacked the case of the day and worked through the legal principles that worked. I enjoyed the repartee back and forth where students might have to defend their position on this legal principle or that, or they may have to apply the facts of the case to the specific principle and kind of take a stand 
and the professor would challenge them. And I just found that to be so fascinating that I applied to the school on the spot. They accepted me. I went back to D.C., gave two weeks' notice, and a couple weeks later, I was in law school. Hmm. And I was sitting there looking people on my left and on my right who had been pre-law. They were all super prepared, uh, and I had my legal pad, and I was sitting there going, okay, what do we do next? Um, I never doubted for a second it was where I was supposed to be and what I was called to be, but it would I'd be lying if I said that I had harbored a desire to be a lawyer for my entire life because it just didn't work that way. I felt like I was a bit of an accidental law student, but once I was there, I had no doubt that it was where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to do. Right, and that's I don't think that's terribly unusual for across the profession, particularly for courtroom lawyers. There are some that know it from you know second grade on, or they say they know it. Um, but lawyers come to the profession in different in different pathways, and that's okay. One other thing you stressed, and I, I found it really interesting in law school, was this idea of critical thinking and critical thinking to lawyers and law school students does not necessarily mean you're a critical person in, as in a Debbie Downer. You don't like everyone or everything or anyone or anything, maybe. Critical thinking is the ability to take a look at a, a fact pattern, a case, and analyze it in a neutral manner in, in such a way that you can see the pluses and minuses of a case, the strengths and weaknesses of a case. And I don't think I fully got it myself until studying for the bar exam where maybe it was someone in Barbary or one of the essay writing people said, there's no right or wrong answer. That's true to a degree. There are some basic precepts of law you kind of need to know in order to pass the bar exam. But it's okay to take a position and think about your opposing counsel's uh, position. And is, is that sort of what you liked about law school? Was that You were a Socratic method school, is that correct? There were some professors that used it more than others. Um, I know there are some schools, and they rely exclusively on the Socratic method, where one student basically stands for the entire classroom and basically has to answer every question from the professor about the case of the day. Mm-hmm. There were some professors at Regent that used it. There were some that did not. But one of the things that I think that law school really, one of the bedrock principles of law school is teaching you and forcing you to argue both sides of an issue. Uh, I loved appellate advocacy. I loved appellate advocacy competitions, doing the research, writing an extensive brief, and then going to a competition where you had had to get up in front of judges. And literally a few minutes before that round, you were told which side of the case you were representing. Mm -hmm. And you had to be prepared to take questions, argue your point, and you had to be able to, to do it on either side. And those competitions were usually set up in such a way that the facts were ambiguous enough that they could be applied to either side of the legal principle. But again, forcing you as a student to develop the critical thinking abilities to think quickly on your feet and to be able to argue either side of an issue. And I think that is a very important skill for all lawyers to have, whether they are courtroom litigators or not. I, I agree 100%. And I, I didn't particularly like it at the time. I went to Campbell Law School back when it was in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. We were a Socratic school, our methodology of teaching. And I think it's helpful for people who are interested in law school to think about this. It's not like college where you are lectured to, you sit 
nowadays everyone's got their laptop open you sit there and listen you record notes and then you regurgitate the information the knowledge base of the information is assumed in law school, meaning you are going to be held to a standard and expected to understand what a contract is, what quid pro quo is, what race ipsa locator means in civil procedure or civil law torts. From there, your, your knowledge base and your learning is going to be tested by challenging you on the fringes or the edges of that. And I... I hate it as a law student sometimes because you're like, golly, I don't really feel like I have a handle on the the information as, as well as I, I wish I could. And and it sounds so sim- simple at times to just say a contract is consideration, but what is consideration? It doesn't mean, hey, you're a nice person. What does consideration mean? What is a, what is an assault versus a battery? And so I, I, I encourage you, if you're looking at law school, consider one that um, – uses the Socratic method. It, it taught us a lot. Campbell was, was very kind of old school in that perspective. Well, I remember being at law school and my entire vision of what it meant to be a lawyer had been, I didn't know, mm-hmm. really know any lawyers growing up. Uh, and so I hadn't had the opportunity to really observe a lot of lawyers, whether it was internships or, or just hearing stories. So my entire concept of what it meant to be a lawyer was based around courtroom concepts from TV, Law and Order, mm-hmm. movies, things like that. And I remember that there were all of these fellow students and peers in my classes who didn't want to be litigators. And I just didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do any number of very valuable and important jobs within the legal field that had nothing to do with litigation. In fact, they were terrified of it. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for me, uh, that the the law – and the legal practice extended far beyond the concept of courtroom work, uh, of litigation, whether it's estate planning, um, wills, trusts, estates, their property, real estate. There are so many other areas of the law that never see a courtroom. And that was, that, like I said, that was an eye-opener for me. And when we would go to competitions and there were people that just wanted nothing to do with that, I had a hard time understanding that. Because, again, for me, the challenge, the thrill, the on-your-feet – whether it was courtroom trial practice or appellate advocacy, that was it for me. But it wasn't for them. Uh, but it was good for me to see that there are way many more areas of the law beyond just the courtroom stuff that are equally impactful for service, for, for engaging with different aspects of the community, uh, and just for helping people. That brings up a point, and I don't know if you agree with me on this. I think litigators are born meaning you come with to the table with a certain skill set and you can improve upon that skill set. But I think litigators tend to be more, na- at least the ones I think are, are the ones I enjoy listening to are more natural, have a, have a certain innate ability to uh, think on your feet, to analyze, to, to speak in a quasi-intelligent fashion. Sometimes we don't have the facts on our side. Sometimes we don't have the law on our side. And there are some people who are more, I guess, designed or built for an analytical approach in the sense of doing contracts, who may enjoy being in a room and and focusing on the specifics and the terms of an agreement or the widgets that they're selling overseas. And there are some people that really get into the appellate aspect of things where you're not having information real-time imparted to you during a trial and you're, you're relying on what we call a cold record. 
I think there's a lot of work that goes into being a successful courtroom attorney, mm -hmm. an incredible amount of preparation, practice, research. But I tend to agree with you that at its core, you either have it or you don't. And I've seen some attorneys that may not have necessarily had it, whatever it is, in terms of the ability to think quickly and just be effective communicators in courtroom who worked very hard on their craft and became effective mm -hmm. courtroom litigators. It's not to say that, that people can't make themselves into that. They can. But I think the best ones, the ones that you and I both know and could probably go down a litany of names, are the ones who just have that charisma. They have that ability to think quickly on their feet, whether it's to quickly shift and address what the court is asking or it's to pivot if things change, quick recall of information, you need to have all those things. And, and the best, the very best litigators, courtroom attorneys are the ones who kind of just have it. And I think you tend to recognize, I've been in district court for 11 years now, um, and I, you know, I've tried very hard. I wanna make sure everyone gets that opportunity, every, every chance to make that first impression, second impression, third impression. But when you've been doing this for a while, you start to recognize fairly early who has it and who doesn't. But again, hard work. A lot of people can do a lot of things with a lot of hard work. And I've seen a lot of attorneys that I might have initially wasn't so sure about that turn themselves into very competent and very effective litigators. Right. The most effective ones are ones that apply a natural skill set with the willingness to work. Yes. I think hard work will outperform people who have a natural skill set, meaning there's you have to put in the time and the hard work in the background. Well, the law will find you out. If right. if you are someone who totally flies by the seat, of, you may be an extremely gifted communicator, but if you fly by the seat of your pants and don't do the prep work, you will be found out in court. The other side will present a case that you weren't aware of. They'll bring in a witness that you weren't aware of. You might not have done the necessary prep work. And so even if you're, as I said, an extremely gifted communicator and litigator, if you don't do the hard work, it'll eventually be found out in court. The, the, the court is very unforgiving when it comes to getting to the truth, when it comes to getting to the law, and when it comes to drilling down on what you really know and what you think you can prove, but again, what the law says about your case. And North Carolina is different in some states. I was speaking with a client yesterday. I was in Monroe. And there are a lot of preconceived notions, depends on your generation. Some old, more senior lawyers would say, you know, was it a Matlock moment? My generation would be more of the L.A. law type of fact pattern. I don't know if nowadays it's law and order or what the most popular one is. And people ask me all the time, what's your favorite law show? And I honestly say, I, I get enough of that at work. I don't really watch any of them. And in court, in district court, we do things differently because we do not have traditional discovery in district court, at least in criminal cases. And so people come in with preconceived notions about, well, when are we going to have our interrogatories on this criminal case? When are we going to depose the, the, the victim in the case? When are we going to depose the officers? And our district court doesn't work like that. In fact, if you, when we bifurcated our, our legal system, we established a district court where things start off with a district court judge. You're both the finder of fact and, and the finder of law. And there are appeals processes, uh, processes for these. But 
the point is that we kind of use district court as a methodology of discovery. And in order to do that, you have to understand the basic precepts of law and kind of anticipate what potential arguments are. I think as a judge, that must be fascinating from the bench watching that get fleshed out. It is. I very much enjoy the intellectual aspect of being a judge. When we come across an issue that's relatively new to me or fairly novel to district court, I I, I just enjoy digging in. Um, and there really are not that many novel issues in district court. Mm -hmm. The universe of cases that we try is pretty limited and probably the most complex in a criminal context would be DWIs. And those can be pretty complicated. And yet, when you boil it down, there's not that many issues that are really going to come up in a DWI. The facts are going to all be different, but the legal principles tend not to be. So you probably could identify four or five of the most common issues that come up in a DWI, and that's probably going to cover 90% plus of DWIs. But when we get into a really interesting issue, so the other day I was talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about larceny cases and assessing value for what items were alleged to have been taken. Because mm -hmm. in North Carolina, if it's under, I want to say 200, it's a misdemeanor. If it's over 200, it's a felony. Um, I sure hope that's the case because <laughs> I don't have that right in front of me. But we were arguing about that number and how you come up with that number. Do you take the retailer's word for it? Is it retail value? Is it wholesale value? What if it was on sale that day? What if I had a coupon? Uh, all of these different kind of hypothetical things about how we establish value. And is it 90000 in bearer bonds, which is a pretty fixed value? Or is it something that could be art? Or is it something that is subjective that I don't see value in, but you do? And it was really a bit of a fanciful discussion, and it wasn't related to a specific case. But I just thought it was a really interesting discussion about how we derive value in these cases. And, and it's a really common question in civil cases where you bring in experts and things like that. A lot of time in criminal cases, we just tend to take the word of the retailer. These packs of gum were five bucks. Mm -hmm. And well, do you have proof of that? No, but that's how much they sell for. Uh, but getting into the weeds on that, I just found that to be really fascinating to kind of delve deeper into that. And I'm sure that if you did more extensive research on on the history of that, you'd probably find more de concrete, definitive answers. But those types of discussions, uh, while a bit nerdy to me, are, are ones that I enjoy. And I'd like to do more of, quite frankly. Well, and interesting enough, that, that brings back our point regarding the, the methodology of learning law. It doesn't really matter what the amount is. Larceny is a deceptively complex area of law in North Carolina, where North Carolina is one of the first 13 colonies. We still, in some instances, recognize common law. The rule regarding a misdemeanor felony was dependent upon the amount of time that you could spend incarcerated in jail prison under a year, over a year. Larceny is the unlawful taking something of value of another, normally a, a, other than maybe real estate. But there are exceptions to what's a misdemeanor or felony where if you are an employee and you steal a pack of gum, even if it's of de minimis value, that could be a felony. Right. If you steal a firearm in North Carolina, which may be less than $1,000 or more than $1,000, and $1,000 is, is, a, is a, a general number that we use, but uh, uh, it can, that could still be a felony. Right. If you are entrusted with something as a, as a either an employee or a person that represents the organization, you could be, they 
$10 or a stapler and be charged with embezzlement. And you're right. It's a thousand. Yeah. I said two hundred. Yeah. I don't know where I came from, but the the cutoff for misdemeanor and felony is a thousand. Right. So right. I better correct that quick. If not, I'll hear about it. Well, it do, frankly, it, I appreciate you doing that. But it doesn't it doesn't matter because the point is, how do you come to that number, and what are the factors you considered? Uh, the 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 valuation issue is something that we deal with regularly on more felony cases. I'll give you an example. The larceny by an employee and felony embezzlement. If you get to a certain number, uh, in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. So basically, I think the number is hundred thousand dollars and one cent. But, and it can be cumulative. That's the other issue: is what's accumulated. It goes from a relatively lower level felony to a class C felony, as wow. in Charlie, which is more serious than armed robbery. Yeah. And so, it's it's experienced lawyers we 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 look at these things and say where are they coming up with this number and how are they saying this is taking place and when you have embezzlement larceny cases for employees sometimes the records get destroyed intentionally sometimes there are things that are mixed you know they use a company credit card for an improper purpose and we're always that that question you brought up is something that when i'm reading discovery i'm i always think to myself who says who says it's worth this amount of money. Right, uh, right. And, and, and those details matter. Mm -hmm. you know, people on the outside of the system may think, well, they stole something. That's all that matters. But in our system of laws, severity of offense, potential punishment for offense, um, all of those things, once you've been convicted, what can happen, restitution, what you're ordered to do if you're convicted, all of, all of that has a lot to do with those established questions of value. So proving that someone took something that wasn't theirs with the intent to permanently deprive, to use the, uh, the, one of the elements in statutory language, isn't enough. You have to prove those questions of value if, it's a, if it is one of, the offend, one of the crimes that does hinge on, on value, and many of them do, as you noted. And North Carolina has complicated things a little bit. I have clients that say, well, they got the items back. And I try to explain to them that the the process of attempting to take something sometimes can be just as bad as actually getting out of store. And there are some stores, a good example, misdemeanor court, what's the difference between unlawful concealment, which some people call shoplifting, versus misdemeanor larceny when they cross over the threshold of the store. And there's some really interesting case law. And this is, I think, you and I both nerd out on these things where <laughs> you get these almost quasi-cartilage arguments where that they get past the cash register. What if they paid for some of the items, but they have something secreted underneath? We see these type of cases. What happens if they put it in a, uh, a pocket versus, you know, was that the intent to permanently deprive or was this just someone that the phone rang and you weren't thinking? So. And that comes up. That right. comes up in trial. Yeah. Larceny and shoplifting are two fairly common charges that I see in district court. And those issues absolutely come up. You know, where were they stopped? Where was the item that they allegedly took? And those things come up. And they are really minor. They seem like minor issues, but they're not. And cases can turn on the evidence related to those issues. That's why I like, I, I, I get into these specific intent crimes 
where you have to intend to permanently deprive or do something or uh, it's not the necessarily sometimes it's I mean to break the plane I like to kind of break and entering of a building or a larceny sometimes it's unintentional I remember one time when Mookie which is my daughter and my nickname we were uh, shopping she was very young and I remember she got out of the stroller and was running around and I, I, I was in a store and I just distracted for a minute like put a you know, pair of sunglasses on my, you know, to keep it from, from falling down or something like that. And I get, remember getting to the line going, hey, make, make sure to charge me for these things. Um, you, you can unintentionally do things. We get distracted. Uh, I've had numerous cases where clients are in a store. They're in South Park Mall, Carolina Place Mall. They get a phone call, and their first inclination is to walk out of the store, and they're holding an item. The alarm goes off. Right. Now, and the question is, did they intend to permanently deprive the the owner right of, of that item, and that's the kind of stuff that really I don't know law dorks we kind of get into. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, if you have more questions about what is larceny or what's the difference between larceny and unlawful concealment, there's plenty of materials out there online, and these are the kind of things in law school that we get into and and realize there's sometimes it's not crystal clear. Uh, I, I think people across the board assume that everything's black and white in court. And sometimes it is, sometimes. But more times, or more often than not, in my experience, it's it's a little bit more opaque. Well, let's um, let's jump back into your background. I, I'm sorry we went down that pathway a little bit. I'm not. I enjoyed but, that. But uh, I do, too. I, I admit <laughs> it. I, I apologize, I guess, for our listeners. But if you're listening to two lawyers talk about these things, you must have a basic interest level. Tell, tell me a little bit about JAG and Judge Advocate General. I, it's something that I've always admired. I wish I had done it myself and, and, and you get to travel in some instances. I think JAG is an incredible opportunity to see both sides of the equation. You, you know, one day or one period of time you may be prosecuting, one may be defending. But tell me, first of all, what is JAG and what's that process? And and how you get in and involved and why you chose to do that. So I first found out about the Navy JAG Corps um, in law school. I had a classmate who was in the Navy and was going to become a lawyer in the Navy after she graduated. And I was just fascinated by that because I have always had an interest in the military. It was something that I would have liked to have done, but just wasn't the right opportunity or the right time. Always had a Real fascination with American wartime periods. That was the focus of my history degree at Carolina. Hmm. And so that, coupled with just a general military interest, really piqued my interest in, in the JAG Corps. To be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about what JAG meant other than the movies A Few Good Men hmm. and the TV show that used to be on CBS years ago, JAG. My day-to-day bore very little, if any, relationship to those shows or that movie but i loved that show and that movie because people knew the term they knew that what a navy jag was and what they did generally speaking as a lawyer for the military so i was totally fine if people wanted to think that i dressed up in my nicest dress white uniforms and flew onto aircraft flew my own fighter pilot onto an aircraft carrier to do a court martial and then flew back off afterwards is that what people wanted to think that's okay by me. Mm-hmm. The reality isn't wasn't quite that exciting, um, but it still was a tremendous opportunity. I made some of the best friends I've ever had, got to live some amazing places and do incredible work. Uh, my first tour was in Japan, 
uh, about an hour outside of Tokyo, uh, the Yokosuka Naval Base, mm -hmm. where I was a prosecutor. We traveled the Pacific area, uh, everywhere from Guam in the east of Japan, all the way to Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. Sadly, I did not have a chance to get to Diego Garcia, but I did get over to Korea, Guam, and multiple other places, and in fact deployed on an amphibious readiness group for four months where I provided legal counsel to that group. Um, but primarily I was a prosecutor in Japan and got to see amazing sights and sounds and travel all over Asia, but do some really interesting work as a prosecutor. Then I transferred to Spain. I really had the dream career during my time in. Yeah, um, how terrible is Japan and Spain? I know people who do, who do 15, 20 years in and never get anywhere close to the places I got to be. So I feel incredibly blessed. Mm -hmm. So from Spain, uh, from Japan, I went to Spain where I was a staff attorney, uh, providing legal advice to the base commander there. Very different situation in Spain. In Japan, as a result of winning the war many, many years ago, we had our base and we owned and controlled this base. In Spain, we were just tenants of the Spanish government and the Spanish Navy. So the rules were very different. We had to comply with a lot more uh, Spanish law and, and Spanish requirement. And I had to do some work with the SOFA, the Status of Forces Agreement between the US and Spain. I did some international law. I advised the base commander on some discipline and criminal justice issues under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, but I wasn't prosecuting or defending but just kind of a little bit of everything as the, the deputy lawyer for the base. Also met my wife there, who was stationed in Spain as a public affairs officer, independent of me. Uh, and then we got married. And then from there, moved to Charleston, where I oh, was. that was terrible. I know, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I was the head of a small legal service office base that's at the uh, – next to the nuclear power training command on the naval weapons station and so i did legal services which included a lot of wills and powers of attorney for sailors who were getting ready to deploy um, marine coast guard as well but also criminal defense and so i did cases uh, court martials and administrative separation boards in charleston jacksonville florida mayport florida and on down to Key West, where I had a couple of uh, criminal cases as well, kind of up and down the eastern seaboard from Charleston on down. Our, our area of responsibility included Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, but I never had that opportunity to go down there. Um, but being in charge of that small legal office was a great opportunity to grow uh, as a leader and an officer. But the defense work was especially meaningful, but also very challenging. Mm -hmm. um, Prosecution was one thing, and you do feel the weight of speaking for victims and their families. However, until you've done defense work and you have to sit across the desk from a young soldier or sailor and tell them that the maximum punishment for what they've been charged with is death. Mm. And yes, the military hasn't executed anyone in a long time, but my legal obligation as an, as an attorney is to tell you that this is the maximum punishment. So even though I don't think it's gonna happen, the law requires me to tell you that, um, that is a sobering conversation. And it, it influenced very much my perspective on what it meant to prosecute as well. So when I became a prosecutor later in Union County, I think my, my work there was very much informed by my prior prosecution work, but also my defense work. But the entire path of JAG 
is meant to eventually build up lawyers to the point where they're able to advise high-level naval commanders on issues related to operations and war. So rules of engagement, international law, the law of the sea, um, some environmental law issues that come because we operate big ships that right. have a, go a lot of places and have a lot of chemicals on them. Uh, and so environmental law becomes relevant. Um, but the, the goal of JAG is not to build up, you know, longtime courtroom litigators. The goal was to build us up to be able to advise war commanders. And so that's why they have you, you know, you're changing jobs every two to three years to, to do that job, but also to learn that job to move as you move higher up the ranks. And of course, as you move higher up the ranks, you're in charge of more people underneath you. And, and I did have that opportunity to oversee some people when I was in Charleston. But that's kind of the eventual goal was building you up to to be this advisory role to uh, the admirals and the captains who are out there on the front line. I think uh, diversity of experience is invaluable. I, I say things all the time and regarding myself. And one of the things I told the prosecutor the other day, I said, I could easily prosecute. I would enjoy prosecuting. And even defense lawyers looked at me and said, Bill, you got your mind? I mean, I said, well, I think it make a defense lawyer experience would help you be a better prosecutor because you empathize, understand more. I There was a judge, he's since retired, he's someone I just admire so incredibly much, uh, Judge Chris Bragg. I don't know if you, you probably, well, actually in Union Absolutely, County, I was yeah. in front of Judge Bragg many times in Union County. And I, I had a, he was visiting Beckford County. My recollection is that we did case after case after case after case in Superior Court. I kept the docket at one time, and it had every defendant's name and my name next to it. I just I volunteered to do it, and we got through, uh, I think it was one of those times where we did a special three-week term, if I'm incorrect on it. The point is we, we tried a bunch of cases together, and I was in a case that we, we lost, and it, it was, a, it was a, a, a narrow technical legal issue, as I recall, and when we lost, I really think it's important to personalize the client with the court. And sometimes people don't want to hear that, but I try to convert a number to a person, a real live being. And when I say a number, I'm referring to the CR number, the CRS number, 22CRS123456, as opposed to Tina Smith or Dave Rogers, whatever. And I, I he listened to me and let me explain who this person was and the nuances of their background and the whys and wherefores. And he said something I will never forget. He said, you don't have to as much personalize this client. I understand that good people make bad mistakes. And he, I remember him telling me that less than 1% of people that ever come before, before him in court, he thought were possibly truly bad people, whatever bad means, you know, people with the intent of causing harm on a community. And that he understood that that we all make mistakes. And while he didn't enjoy or relish punishing people, part of his role as a judge was to enforce the law, to hopefully um, teach that person something and hold them accountable. And I remember afterwards, he did it with such a kindness that the client who as I recall, again, was going one way. That's what we refer to, meaning the deputies come behind you and, right. and handcuff you. Uh, they were going behind the wall. They were going to jail. And, they, and the client actually, in open court, said thank you. Another thing he did was that, as a defense lawyer, I appreciate is when we lost the case, 
rather than letting the deputies just come right in and handcuff him right then and there while he was giving them a chance at allocution speaking with him. They, and they, they will. They'll come stand behind you. But he said, listen, don't handcuff him right now. This person, I've not imposed judgment yet. I want to speak to this person on a one-on-one -on -one level. And he was also explaining the process to them, saying, I hope you realize that you got a very good trial in court. You had a lawyer who, and I, I'm not trying to be braggadocious, but he took the time to point out that both the prosecution and the defense did their jobs, did their jobs with honor, did their jobs with courtesy and respect to one another, that followed the court, that were polite and respectful to the jurors. And that level of professionalism sometimes is forgotten in court. And, and he wowed me uh, with that. And I hope that we see more of that in court. And I do appear in front of you, not as much with COVID um, as we used to with Mecklenburg County. And I want to get into that a little bit next if we can. But that's something that I think you've always been good about is listening to us and personalizing that client. And there's no question you're going to impose judgment uh, when, when judgment needs to be. But you do so in a, in a compassionate, kind manner and hopefully help that person accused of um, um, understanding that, that they, they had a fair day in court. And, and they, you know, reasonable minds can differ. We say that all the time in court, reasonable minds can differ. So. Right, and and I think it's really important when judges also help explain their decisions. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times people just the number one thing you hear from surveys is that when people go to court, they just want to be heard. Mm -hmm. So of course you need to let people try their case and be heard. Now there are limitations on that. What the evidence will let you present, uh, time, other things like that. But you want to make sure people get their basic what what they want to say out there and give them a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think that. Also, and I try to do this a lot, and maybe I overdo it, I don't know, uh, but I think tr I try to explain my decisions when I can. I think that's important for officers, police officers to hear. I think it's important for victims to hear, other witnesses, and, and defendants to hear it too. This was the issue here, and this is why I arrived at the decision I did. Um, somebody I know used to say that people weren't, that what people are not up on, they're down on. And so what people don't understand or don't know how you got there, their first reaction is going to be negative. And I think we can both think of times when someone said something or we've heard something and without knowing the backstory or why it went into that, our immediate reaction was negative. But once we heard from them and heard why they arrived at this decision or they gave us some data or whatever the case could be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so if all I do is snap out guilty and this is the judgment and that's it, with no effort to give additional explanation or even explain evidentiary rulings. Um, I think that no one has, th there's less opportunity to learn for the litigants, whoever they may be. And so I think and judges have to be careful with that, what they're explaining and, and, and what they go into. But I think it is an important part of this to explain where you are and how you got to the decision you got. Not everyone's going to agree with it. I tell people that at least half of the people leave my courtroom unhappy because trial is kind of the ultimate all or nothing outcome in criminal court. You are guilty or you are not guilty. There's no in between. There's no split judgments. So at least half the people leave my courtroom unhappy. Sometimes it's more than that because someone may have gotten a guilty verdict but been unhappy with the sentence or whatever the case may be or not got the restitution that they wanted or whatever damages it was. Uh, but if you can explain how you got to the decision, I think it helps people to accept and understand it. They may not agree with it, 
But if they understand how you got there, I think it helps acceptance. And that acceptance and understanding, I think, can definitely increase faith in the justice system. And reasonable minds can differ. Absolutely. I, 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 we always used to joke, there were certain terms in law school that we would, would use harmless error or reasonable minds can differ or racist a locker. I picked up on Again, I'm the dorky one, so I, I like the <laughs> ones, you know, race ifs a locker, expressio unis, those, those maxims. I explain things to our clients about the process. I explain to clients of how I expect the evidence to uh, come out. And that was something, actually, I don't, I don't know if you ever appeared in front of Judge Eric Levinson. He's, he's I did on, not. not on the bench anymore. He was a former prosecutor, if I recall, in Cabarrus County. He was a district court judge in Charlotte. Went to... Iraq, I think, for a while. He was a judge advocate general in Iraq, which would have been... I think well, I think when he was in Iraq, it was in a civilian capacity oh, okay. with the State Department. Right. Also oh. a court of appeals judge. Right, right. And I remember Judge Levinson taking the time and saying, you had your day in court. I, I listened to you fully. Your art, your lawyer made a an argument that makes sense and was prepared. I just disagree with their conclusion. That doesn't mean that I'm disagreeable towards you or disagreeable towards them. Um, it's it, and this is this is something that I, that based on in the totality of circumstances, the evidence I hear using a reasonable doubt standard, which is the highest standard in the land. This is the conclusion I have come to, and in district court, you know, you you would do the same thing, and he would do the same thing. Say you have a right to an appeal, you have a right to a de novo appeal. Appeal. It's a new in Latin of new starting afresh again in Superior Court. Let's talk about a little bit about the process in Mecklenburg, if you, if you uh, don't mind. And I know we're a little bit long here, but this is a really fascinating subject. In approximately the end of February 2020, maybe beginning of March 2020, we, and the reason I set this time period is I, I, I remember getting on an airplane from New York City we were taking a fall break or winter break with my daughter and within two weeks our system changed and changed in a way that I had not seen in the prior 28 years with COVID and I remember flying up to New York and I saw someone with a Home Depot mask on kind of wondering what they were wearing a mask for and then flying back and everyone was masked up and there was this uh, the fear and, and it's easy for us to remember the fear. We all get tired of it, but the fear, if we didn't have a shot, we were, you know, touching things was a concern. Shaking hands was a concern. Uh, courtrooms don't, aren't really particularly clean places. Prior to COVID, I didn't particularly like shaking hands uh, myself. But we essentially shut down the Mecklenburg County, and there were some courts cons constitutionally we had to keep open. Uh, we bond hearing courts. But... Tell me about your, your recollections of that as a bench and how things kind of developed. Because I really want to get into your work individually to help clear some of the cases. And I don't mean to be disparaging towards anyone. I don't mean to be critical of anyone in, in charge of the system. I think people, there were no nefarious purposes. I think people were trying to do the best they could with the circumstances. I may not agree with all the decisions, but I don't think anyone was, as I like to say, waxing their mustache and tying people to trestles of uh, train tracks. What, what was your recollection of that time? And, and as you feel comfortable speaking, I mean, obviously, we're still dealing with this now. But my recollection is that 
approximately March 2020, we stopped. And Charlotte's a big city. Uh, Mecklenburg County is, I know we go back and forth with Raleigh, saying we're the largest judicial district, but let's just say we got, we got a mess of cases here. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what, what's your recollection of that time and how things developed and, and how are, are we going to be able to get through it? Right. And I remember late January, probably in February, we started hearing stories about this virus. It was in other places than here. And then stories started to trickle in about it was spreading. And now it's in Europe and now it's in New York and now it's made its way to North Carolina. And then we get into March and it was mid-March that the system truly shut down in Charlotte. And when I say shut down, it shut down. Um, there were some courts that we continue to maintain, like first appearance court, people who had been arrested and had bond hearings and things like that, uh, domestic violence, protective orders, um, some other things we continued to do that just by law could not stop and we had to keep doing. Um, but it things just really stopped. And, and we look back at that time. I mean, I think every, everybody remembers 15 days to flatten the curve. Um, and some of the things we heard at that point, I remember going to Harris Teeter and you had rubber gloves on and, mm -hmm. you know, we were wiping down your groceries and it was just a crazy time. Mm -hmm. um, and of course we look back at that and we've learned a lot since then. Mm -hmm. We've learned a lot about what the virus is and what the virus isn't. We've learned a lot about what steps help us and what don't. And it, we certainly, you know, know a lot more now than we did then, but it was a hard time and nobody knew what was going on. You know, I, I, I jokingly mentioned the 15 days to flatten the curve, but I, I think I really thought at that point that we were just going to slow down for a couple weeks, maybe a month, and then a couple weeks turned into one month, which turned into two months, which turned into three months, and it just kept going. And you thought, when is the end in sight? And then things got better, and then Delta hit, and then they got worse again. Mm -hmm. And we, we restarted some jury functions, for example, in Superior Court in Mecklenburg, and try to do some trials and then quickly had to shut them down again because of uh, COVID issues and jury panels. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a really hard, frustrating, and continues to be a hard and frustrating time. I believe very strongly, and I think most lawyers would agree with me, that justice delayed is justice denied. So if you have been charged with the crime and you're waiting three, two to three years just to get into court and have that issue addressed, or you're the victim of a crime and you've been waiting for years to have your case heard, or you are a mom or a dad engaged in a custody battle, or you need child support to care for your child, you the system can't just shut down completely. Mm -hmm. And so some courts, like family court, did a better job of getting back up and running sooner. They were able to use virtual WebEx um, those who don't know WebEx, it's just another version of Zoom mm -hmm. to do things online. Because in civil court, there's more freedoms in civil court to do things remotely, to do things virtually. You can't do criminal court remotely. You have your right to confrontation, uh, various constitutional rights. You need to be there in a courtroom with the ability to directly confront your accuser. Criminal court just cannot be done remotely, criminal trial court anyway. Mm -hmm. And so those things just slut down. It just shut down. And it's my opinion that, you know, we should not have shut down the way that we should. And I don't have any problem saying that. Mm -hmm. We should have slowed down. We should have taken appropriate precautions and slowed down. But by completely shutting down, 
we've now run into this massive issue where things were just taken off dockets or they were given court dates that were out three, four, five, six months that never happened. And then the case was reset and reset. And there's a large part of the district criminal court population that's transient, that doesn't have stable housing, mm -hmm. that's hard to get a hold of. And so now we're trying to restart a system that should not have been shut down. We're having a hard time finding people. And we're wrestling through those issues. Had we just slowed down, then I don't think we would be running into the same issues of notice and finding people. But because it shut down and now everyone's scrambling to get things going again, lawyers are trying to find their clients, our victims are trying to find out when the case will be, people have moved, their address is not the same for service of subpoenas, their, their phone numbers have changed, their people can't get in touch with them. And so it's just a, it's a mess. It's a real mess. Yeah, and I admittedly was scared to death. I have a pre-existing medical thing. Um, and in full disclosure, in January of this year, I got, I believe, the Omicron variant, and I had a hard time with it. And I was double-dosed and boosted, I think, personally. I think it saved my life. And I still had a, a very mm -hmm. hard time. Still right. And I don't want for one second for right. people to think I'm downplaying the severity oh, no, of the crisis. No, 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 it was no, no. significant and severe. It, but we, you're, you have to, you know, we don't, the Constitution doesn't stop being the Constitution during a public health crisis. Right. And so we have to find a way to balance public safety, to keep people healthy, to keep people safe, while continuing to maintain constitutional rights. You have defendants that are in jail on bond right. who don't have a trial date. Mm -hmm. That is a significant issue under the Eighth Amendment and other issues and, and, and other various legal you know, legal principles. You can't just hold people in some Kafka-esque idea where they're they're just held with no prospect of a trial. Mm -hmm. And it felt like that's where we were for a little bit. And I spent months and months and months in first appearance court, in person court. I never stopped coming to court in person. Right. I was there every day in person doing these hearings, and I was wrestling with those issues. And in my context, I w I wanted to say I was worried about it and. Not but, and we, our firm travels around the region, and I don't travel quite as much as I used to. I've, I've literally tried cases in Murphy in Cherokee County. I've tried cases in New Bern. Other than the far northeast, I've been around, but we still travel a fair amount. And I, having experienced that during COVID, even a person who was scared to death and tried to limit literally exposure, I saw a great difference between how things were handled in some jurisdictions versus others. And I have been saying there's got to be a balance somewhere between <laughs> COVID doesn't exist, no masking up, uh, no separation in a court system, and no court. Right. Zero. Right. Somewhere uh, in between. And there were some things that we did in Charlotte to try to mitigate that. We do family law. I did some. I served as best interest counsel. We we did some review hearings via WebEx. We did calendars, some of them kind of rotating uh, in both criminal and civil court. And there were some things about it that I really, frankly, hope and wish we would continue to do because sitting in court is not terribly efficient. 
for anyone. In yeah, I do think we found some efficiencies along right, the way, right, some right. things we can do better. Right. And one of the lessons, and there are many, many lessons I learned during COVID, one of which is how much time I waste sitting in court. I am way, way, way more efficient being back in the office or even working remotely from home, getting things done. And Zoom, the other benefit is that everyone now knows how to use Zoom. Right. And we've all, you know, that it was like drinking from a fire hose to start with, but we always, we all now seem to have a comfort level with that to greater and less effect in some My 10-year-old knows how to use Zoom probably right. better than most people now. <laughs> well, and uh, I don't know if schooling full-time really is effectual doing that. My daughter it's basically her senior year uh, doing that in high school. And I remember watching her doing the homework, and mm -hmm. that's tough yeah. to do. So we are where we are. Right. We can talk about how we got here. I don't know if there's going to be much time for that level of introspection. And, not but, we have a problem in Charlotte. And you have done something that I, I want to compliment you on. You actually handled the... You tell me what the name was, the DWI corridor. The, the, we, we, we chose a practice of law, an area of law, trilong-paired cases in Mecklenburg County that got an elevated level of attention. Let's talk about that a little bit and how that worked and what were you doing. So in 2021, um, the early part of the year, we identified that we had a backlog of about 3,500 DWI cases. That's driving while impaired cases. That misdemeanors. Let's clarify. This. Misdemeanors. Misdemeanors. We're misdemeanors. not talking felony death by vehicle. Right. We're not right. talking second degree murder involuntary. And, and I'm not talking about any other misdemeanor or district right. court case. I'm just talking DWIs, 3,500 DWIs. And a plan was put together uh, by the chief district court judge, district attorney, and others to establish a DWI backlog court. And all this court did was handle DWIs. And it was supposed to be 10 weeks and extended significantly longer than that. And during that time, I think we resolved a little over 600 DWIs. And when I say resolved, uh, many cases were tried, some guilty, some not guilty. Some of them were resolved in motions. Some of them were guilty pleas and others were dismissed when relevant witnesses didn't appear in court. Um, but we disposed of 600, over 600 cases and, and took a nice, put a nice dent in that. Um, 20%, which is yes. good. And we need, and, and, I, and I think and have been advocating for and continue to say, we need to continue that to some level because these cases are serious. They have a significant impact on people, both those charged and mm -hmm. those who may be on the other end of it. And we need to continue to focus on resolving these cases and addressing this backlog. Let me, let me take a second here to clarify something too from a defense lawyer's perspective. I think there's some narratives that people tend to apply to defense lawyers for stalling or first of all most defense lawyers charge a flat rate especially for something like dwi secondly during this period of covid and i i, I kept saying this to clients and they just could not believe it even if i wanted to plead guilty to a drywall impaired case to a misdemeanor assault to a weapons case even if i wanted to do some sort of deferred disposition i could not get in court i couldn't right. just add the matter on and we, we had this cycle of get a court date and then a day or two before we get notice, no court. And it was this perpetual leapfrogging, court date, court date, court date, which drove my clients absolutely insane. Well, how do you, how do you not know? I don't set the calendar. Well, how do you not know the new court date? Well, they'll, they'll let us know in two or three days afterwards. And it was, it, it was really, really rough. And it remains rough. Um, 
on, in some matters, the, what we call private warrant court has been tremendously disabling to some clients. I can't get a job. I have a pending case. I'm a pilot with U.S. Airways. I've got a DWI pending. I, I can't work until this is cleared. That is the one side of coin. On the other side of coin, where the, the victims in the cases, where the same thing were taking place, where they may get a subpoena to come to court, they may not. They, they, they want to have an opportunity to be heard. They can't get their day in court. I, I did a third-year trial practice up in Wake County. I remember my, my boss there said that these cases, district court cases, are not fine wines. They don't get better with age. And now we've got cases now where some are aging, and you know the metrics more than I do, but we, we cleared a lot, which 20% or so. Understanding that that number keeps rising. Right. People right. continue to right. be charged right. with new crimes. Right, right. So you have nothing being resolved while you're adding new stuff on top of it. Right. And and I have and we there are 2018 and 2019 cases out there that still haven't been touched. You know, if you were arrested and charged with something near the end of 2019, maybe you had your first appearance court date early in 2020 and then boom, everything shuts down and literally nothing has happened since then. So we have cases that may have occurred two and a half, three plus years ago that are just sitting there. And even if you wanted to get it done, like you said, you couldn't. And and we are in the process. Things are improving. We have reopened courtrooms. We have different processes in play now. We are handling cases again and figuring some things out. So the wheels of justice are turning again, but very, very slowly. And I think it was Albert Einstein was asked one time, what's the most powerful uh, force in the universe? And he said compound interest. And that's what we're dealing with here was when you you have a set of cases it's not just a static number okay we'll get through this and now we're fine the entire time you're taking cases off the docket clearing cases by trial disposition whatever you're adding to that number the entire time and then there's that this has to be this there has to be this discernment or choosing which cases are going to go forward with what you know do we do it solely based on age do we based on the severity of the offense and for my friends on the, on the other side of the aisle, DA's office, that's got to be incredibly difficult because DA bad cases are important, but so are the weapons cases, so are the assault on female cases, so are the private warrant cases. So, as a as a business owner, do you do you want the shoplifting cases just to be ignored, or, right? And, or you know, how are we going to get that personnel? And and don't forget, in North Carolina, we are currently hamstrung by a 1980s era. I kid you not, DOS based computer system for managing criminal files. And this is in, it changes in the works. We keep, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have Odyssey, we'll have this new system in place. But right now I, 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 I tell people this and they look at me like I have three heads. We have a DOS based system. So for, for clerks and DAs to go in and try to create new dockets, it's incredibly time consuming. And this is why I said we shouldn't have shut down. We should have slowed down but because things are having to be created out of whole cloth using systems that probably that, that, that were created and used before some of these younger lawyers were even alive. Um, <laughs> it is making this even harder. Well, I actually, that system, we call it ACES, which yep. is the automated computer information system or something like that. That was in existence when I first started. We don't and, have to talk about how long ago that right. was. Right. Well, 1992. Okay. And it blows my clients away 
to talk about when I explain these things to them. So every once in a while, I'll take a screenshot <laughs> and say, this is still, they changed the color. There have right. been some updates. It used to be the green cathode ray thing. But now it's blue. Okay. And there, it's not a statewide network, meaning you can get access to all the different, there are 100 counties. You have in to North go County. in and put in a county code right, for every right. county you want to search. So I keep on my desk. Yeah. Go in there. You'll see. It's I crazy. have a county code. And some counties enter information differently than others. <laughs> uh, I remember one time we, I had a case in Rowan County where the next court date was up in the corner, and that's when we appeared. But they had another court date in the center portion, which no one else used that portion of the uh, of the mainframe. And we caught it in time. But I was like, "What? Is, what is this <laughs> divergence in court dates?" I hope that's going to improve and change. Uh, but guess, it's you know we keep waiting and waiting and waiting. So here we are. Well, I um, I don't want to speak for other people, but I can tell you that I think everyone was planning family court, and we do divorce law. And Charlotte was going to be one of, or is supposed to be one of the first jurisdictions in the state where we have this automated filing system. And I got some bad news for people that that is probably not going to happen, as I understand it. Anytime. I mean, the federal system has had PACER, which is an electronic filing and document management system for years. Right, right. And getting there uh, took time. Sure. I actually have PACER access. You actually take a class, and um, boy, if you don't follow the rules there and file something wrong, you get yourself into some Dutch. Well, that's the feds. And well, and I, <laughs> you have, I did federal work for a fair number of years. I don't, I don't really go there much uh, at all anymore. Every once in a while, there's something that has some crossover. But if you're filing something in federal court, there is a learning process. There are all these procedures and protocols, and it's not just a matter of like you and I getting the new cool app on our iPhone. Legal filings are different. Right. There are timing issues. And there are some materials that can and cannot be filed with, with, with a filing and, and, and uh, using a divorce case. You don't just attach every piece of proof. You, there is a, a trend towards us using more basic language, more simplified pleadings. North Carolina is not a code pleading state, meaning you don't have to do like they do in Louisiana or Virginia, the old French, the French systems where each and every element, you try to get the big picture ideas. You try not to use the where's and why for and uh, I went to a great CLE, by the way. I commend this to you if you ever get a chance. She's um, our chief justice on the North Carolina Court of Appeals, and she came around and said, you know, here are the top ten things that lawyers are doing wrong in their arguments and their pleadings and writing their findings of fact. And I remember <laughs> leaving the seminar, and I had, I had checked off every single one of them. So we literally went back and changed mm -hmm. all our pleadings to use that. Instead of using that as much and wherefore and why is in the L legalese. So. Well, one of my favorite books in law school, I remember 1L legal writing was plain English for lawyers. Mm -hmm. Because lawyers, I think we forget how to talk like normal people. Mm -hmm. And so we start adopting all of these completely unnecessary terms and uh, mannerisms and legal affectations that just make what we do unapproachable mm. when you could just explain something simply and do so without legal jargon and say the exact same thing, but do so in a way that lay people can understand it. And I just always thought that that book should be required reading for every lawyer mm -hmm. to make sure that their communications were simpler and more approachable. Yeah. And, they, and the judge justice or judge is judge Donna Stroud, as I recall, I th I'm a total hypocrite about this because I do like some terms of art because I can use shorthand. You know when I say 
race ipsa what I'm talking about. Sure. If I say expresso unis, that's exclusio arterius. If I say expresso unis, you know what I'm talking sure. about. And in the pleadings themselves. The, the point is, is that our system, we're going to try to adopt these different things. And it's, it's going to be a monumental uh, step. And the apps keep changing. And, and uh, we are hamstrung by that as much as any jurisdiction. And I'm concerned about that. Well, Your Honor, we, uh, as usual, uh, have gone way over time than it's anticipated. I have a million <laughs> more questions to ask you. And if I can get you, I, I, I want to ask questions like, you know, from a law student's perspective, what judges do. Uh, join us on another episode of Law Talk. Once again, uh, to our listeners, we thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, we have a different, uh, like several different types of um, metrics as far as who listens to the show. Some are lawyers. Some are uh, law students. Some are people who are considering law. Some some of our episodes are for people who are facing the legal system and want to have you know, questions answered. So if you have a question or a topic that you would like us to discuss on Law Talk, please email me at lawtalkwithbillpowers at gmail.com. You may also, uh, excuse me, uh, call 704-342-HELP, H-E-L-P. While that's um, uh, maybe a little cheesy telephone number, it's easy to remember, uh, especially if you're sitting in jail. Uh, So uh, 704-342-HELP. So thank you again for listening. Thank you, Your Honor, for joining us. And um, uh, look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of uh, Law Talk. You're listening to Law Talk with Bill Powers, your resource for answers to your most pressing questions. Attorney Bill Powers sits down with some of today's leading experts.